morning. It's great to see everybody today. Um, hope you enjoyed the cold weather, right? The last two mornings, kind of the first time of the season that we felt actual cold air, not just cool air when we get up in the morning. But I think it's going to be a, a great day, especially for our cookout um, after the second service this morning. Uh, if you are a guest with us or I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. And so we are excited um, for those of you who are guests with us to come and check us out uh, this morning. We would love to be able to connect with you, and the easiest way to do that is to text the word WELCOME uh, to 817-755-1668. So for those of you that are in the room or if you're watching online, you can do that um, and just like, we're not going to do anything weird. We're just going to, you'll get an email from me in the, uh, sometime tomorrow just saying thanks. And if there are any questions that you have um, about the church, we want to be able to answer those. So just begin that connection process. Um, if you are interested in finding out how to get connected uh, to our church, like in a group or something like that, um, let us know. I'd love to um, kind of point you in the right directions with that um, as well. We want to just give you all the information that you need if you're considering making the table your church home, because um, we want to be a place that helps you take those next steps in your faith wherever you are. I'm so really glad that you're here this morning. Um, as we get started in the message, let me pray for us um, and ask God to speak to us in this time. So we, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pause for just a second in the um, midst of all that is going on in our lives and going on around us, God, we um, just want to declare our need for you. Father, I know that in the lives of many people that are a part of our church, like just heavy things are going on, challenging things are taking place, and Father, I pray that you would um, extend grace and mercy and meet the needs of everyone right where they are. I'm thankful for that promise that we read in Hebrews that says we can bring our request to you knowing that you will hear us and you will give us grace and mercy when we need it the most. Father, with what we're going to talk about as we look at your word, I, I pray that you would really speak to us and show us areas of our lives that need to change. Maybe it's a, a belief that needs to change or, or, or a practice that we need to begin to do a little bit differently, but Father, I pray that you would speak to us and help us to understand what life in you is truly all about. So Father, may we hear from you today. May we be able to take the things that we talk about and apply it to our lives so that we live differently as a result. Thanks for the hope that we have in Jesus who willingly laid down his life for us so that by faith in him, we could be brought into a relationship with you that lasts forever. May we understand more of the hope that we have today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Anybody ever done a Google search uh, on things people think are in the Bible but are not? Anybody ever done that? I don't see anybody voluntarily saying that. I see some heads and stuff like that. So for those of you that have never done that, don't worry. Because I'm going to give you the results of what that Google search would say. Because I, a couple of weeks ago, did a Google search on things that people think are in the Bible but actually aren't. Okay? So here we go. I'm going to start off with kind of a couple of trivia things, kind of. Uh, I think that's kind of the way we look at them. So, in the Garden of Eden, what kind of fruit was the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve 
8. Okay, what kind of fruit, right? In the garden, the Garden of Eden, it's paradise. Adam and Eve eat this fruit, then sin enters the world, and everything is messed up. Thanks, Adam and Eve, for that. So what kind of fruit did they eat? For those of you that are thinking apple, that is not actually in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say what kind of fruit it is. I think the reason that we associate it with an apple is just for whatever reason, somebody started drawing pictures that way, which doesn't make any sense to me. Let's pick a fruit that people don't like to eat all the time and put those in the pictures, right? But that's something that people think is in the Bible, but is not. Okay, next one. How many wise men traveled to see Jesus at his birth? How many wise men traveled to see Jesus at the time of his birth? Well, for those of you that are thinking three, that is not actually in the Bible. It does not say how many wise men traveled to visit Jesus. We think three because of the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and so the assumption is that there was one wise man for each of the gifts, but the reality is we don't know. There could have been a lot more than just three wise men. Okay, so how about some phrases that people think must be in the Bible somewhere, but are not actually in the Bible? First one, this too shall pass. Sounds like something that would be in the Bible, but it is not anywhere in the Bible. Next one, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Moms and those of us who are guys, right, our moms wanted us to believe that when we were younger, but the truth is that is not actually a phrase that's in the Bible. Um, I'll give you one more. God will not give us more than we can handle. You know that phrase is not in the Bible. But how many times have we heard somebody say, or maybe we've said in the midst of a difficult circumstance of our lives, I know I'll be okay because God won't give me more than I can handle. That's actually a, a misunderstanding of a verse that's found in the Bible. It's uh, the verse 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says that God is faithful. He will not... Uh, no temptation has come upon us that is uncommon to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted more than we are able, but will always provide a way of escape. So understand, I don't want you to miss this, what that verse is actually talking about. It's talking about temptation. It's saying that we won't face a temptation where we have to say yes to it and give in to sin. In any temptation, God will always provide a way for us to say no and to avoid sin. So it's about temptation not necessarily about difficult circumstances that we go through in life. So this is the third week of our series we've called Enough. And in thinking through that, that statement, God will not give us more than we can handle. I think it's one that's not just not in the Bible, but it's actually one that's really, really dangerous. Because what happens is if we think well, God's not going to give me more than I can handle. When difficult circumstances come into our lives, we think, well, I'm supposed to be able to handle this, or I should be able to handle this. And so as parents, maybe we face a situation with our kids where we just don't know what to do. We don't know how to help them. We don't know what to say. We think to ourselves, I'm supposed to be able to handle this. Or uh, if we're diagnosed with a significant illness, we think to ourselves, well, everything is going to be okay because God said he won't give me more than I can handle. 
And then when we're not able to do what we think we ought to do or ought to be able to do, it creates a crisis of faith. And we begin to think, well, what's wrong with me? I don't have enough faith. I'm not good enough. Or I'm not enough. Well, remember the point of this series is that we're not enough, and that's okay because Jesus is. So sometimes when we believe that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, it creates a crisis of faith in our lives. Sometimes at this, it can also lead us into the sin of self-sufficiency. So because we think that we are supposed to be able to handle anything that comes into our lives, we begin to function that way. And so we distance ourselves from God. We don't ask God for wisdom and guidance to know what to do because we think, well, I'm supposed to be able to handle this, which we're not supposed to. And it leads us into that sin of self-sufficiency. But the truth is, we often face circumstances that are more than we can handle. And so today, what I want to do is talk about how to handle what is more than we can handle. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the passage that we're looking at this morning. It's Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. Luke 22, 39 through 46. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it will be on the screen as I read it here in just a second. Or if you are a YouVersion Bible app user, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. There's some really helpful things in there today, so I would encourage you to take a look at that. In the first week of our series, we began with Jesus in the upper room. As he gathered with his disciples, he instituted what we refer to as the Lord's Supper or communion. And we talked about how, in part, when we participate in the Lord's Supper or communion, it reminds us that we aren't enough But Jesus is. That through his death on the cross, he paid the price for our sins that allows us to have a relationship with God. Last week, Wayne talked about the argument that the disciples had over greatness and the importance of service. And when you stop and think about the argument that the disciples had, it does not make sense at all. Because the truth is that we cannot do what God has called us to do apart from the work of Jesus through our lives anyway. So what we do is not about us. So why argue over it? Today we're going to travel with Jesus from the upper room into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus began to pray. And this is just minutes before his arrest that would ultimately lead to his death. And in his prayer and what happens in that moment, there's so much that we could talk about from this passage. But what we're going to do today is look at the example of Jesus We're going to see what he does in the midst of the most difficult circumstance of his life to help us to understand how to handle more than we can handle when those circumstances come into our lives. So let me read this passage for us in its entirety. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. He went out, again, he's coming from the upper room. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. Exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. 
Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. I don't know if you think about Jesus the way that I do, but most of the time when I read through the Gospels, in my mind, I picture superhero Jesus. And what I mean by that is, regardless of whatever passage I'm reading or verses that I'm reading, I think about Jesus as the one who healed the sick and cast out demons. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. So he did all of these incredible things. I picture the Jesus who confronted the religious leaders of his day and wasn't afraid to talk about challenging things. So I picture the never fearful, never worried, charge the hill kind of Jesus in, in, in any and every circumstance. But yet here we see a different picture. Because here in these moments alone with the Father, just hours before what would be the most difficult circumstance of his entire life, where he knew what was going to happen. He was getting ready to lay down his life for us. He would endure suffering and pain, and he would do it for us. In these moments, we see Jesus in all his humanity. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around because, honestly, the way that I do, I think I'm not alone in this. Most often, I think about Jesus as being fully God. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but at the same time, he is fully human. And here in his humanity, his prayer at the beginning is, Father, this whole redemption thing, like if there's another way that we can do this that doesn't lead to my suffering and death, let's take that option. But yet, not my will, but yours be done. I can't even begin to understand the agony that Jesus was going through in these moments of prayer. As he prayed, he was in anguish, the text tells us. He sweat, his sweat became like drops of blood, and there are medical reasons for all of that, just the level of stress that he was under. But in those moments, as Jesus was praying, it wasn't so much a, 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 it was really more, the focus of his prayer was more about having the strength and courage to be able to endure the will of the Father, to be obedient to the will of the Father. In these most difficult moments, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And in that garden scene, I see Jesus giving us an example of how to handle more than we can handle. And there are two things that he does. First is he determines to do God's will, the will of the Father. And number two, he stays dedicated in prayer. I want to talk about both of those things. The first thing that Jesus does in the midst of what is the most difficult time of his life, his focus is not my will, but yours be done. It's a phrase that shows up a lot in church and in Christian circles and conversations that we have with one another. It's the will of God. What is the will of God? How do you know the will of God? Or how do you determine what the will of God for your life is? I'm going to give you several things to think about. First, my will and God's will is not the same. Okay, get this. Your will and God's will are probably not the same thing, so stop trying to make them be the same. The reason I say that, in my will, what I want is what I think is best for me. 
And so what I want is an easy life. I want personal recognition, accolades. I want to be successful in the standard measures of success in life. And it's entirely possible that none of those things are God's will for me. That's what I want. It may not be what God wants. Most of the time when we think about God's will for our lives, we think, we end up thinking about like key, big, life-changing decisions that we have to make. Generally speaking, kind of falling back on two things, like what does God want me to do? What career does God want me to have or what job does God want me to have? And oftentimes, number two, it is, who does God want me to be in a relationship with? I used to think that that was really something that was significant for me in the circle that I grew up in, growing up in church between the ages of 16 and 22. I think between the ages of 16 and 22, that was the most important question that I tried to answer. Who is God's will for me to marry. We've got some of our students that are in the room this morning, and so you guys probably think about that sometimes, right, when it comes to God's will. The reason I say it's between 16 and 22, if you got past 22, that meant God didn't have somebody for you anymore. You were just out of luck because all the good ones were taken, right? So you had to figure it out between 16 and 22. But what I found is it's not the case. Like, actually, older single adults ask the same question or think in the same way. Shows up a little bit differently. I'll tell you how it happens. Because I see this on social media a lot. This person is God's gift to me. Or God has brought this person into my life. They say something about that. And what they're saying is that this person is God's will for my life. It is God's will for me to be in a relationship with this person. And so I see that. This is God's gift for me. And then I begin to watch the way that that relationship plays itself out. And it goes against everything that God has said. His will is for our relationships. And I think to myself, well, wait a minute. If that's God's gift, why are you misusing God's gift? That's not God's will for your life. That's your will. And you're just trying to make your will God's will. It's not the same. Because God's will is not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. And so often when we think about God's will, kind of get stuck on these big decisions, oftentimes we're thinking, well, what's God's will in relation to the stuff that I have? Like, what kind of car does God want me to drive? What kind of house does God want me to live in? And who's the person that God wants for me? And we begin thinking that way. God's will, what's God's will in relation to stuff, the stuff that I have? All of a sudden, we begin to think, well, God's will for my life is about my happiness. Like, God's primary concern is making me happy. But again, I want you to know God's will is not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. And God's primary concern for you is not your happiness. God's primary concern for you is your holiness or your growth in becoming more like Jesus. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand because I don't think that God wants you to be miserable for the rest of your life. But yet at the same time, if we think that God's primary concern in my life is for my own happiness. We are missing what faith and the life of faith is actually about. But I hear it a lot. Like, I know this is what God wants me to do because this is what makes me 
happy. I think that grossly misunderstands the life of faith. I'll show you how. Now, for those of you that have been through Formed with me, which is our pathway to partnership, if you've been through that, this is nothing new. I talk about this in Formed. But so often when we try to figure out, well, what does the life of faith look like? What's our understanding of faith? We go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is a great place to go. Hebrews 11, it's oftentimes referred to as the Hall of Faith chapter. So there's a definition of faith and then all of these examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Typically what we do when we try to understand the life of faith, we begin reading through the first half of Hebrews 11. And our conclusion that we come to is, if I live by faith, then that means that great things are going to happen for me, or God will do great things through me. The reason being, we read things like this, by faith, Abraham left his father's household to go to the the land that God would show him. And so we think, see, by faith, great things happen to Abraham. We read like, By faith, Moses went and rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so we think, okay, I get it. Here's what faith is. If I live by faith, then I'll be able to do great things like Moses did. We read, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. So the people of Israel marched around the city of Jericho. They didn't do anything other than walk around the city. The walls fell down. So if I live by faith, then great things like that will happen for me. But the problem is we only read the first half of the chapter got to continue reading a second half where we read things like this. By faith, people were imprisoned. By faith, people were stoned. By faith, people were sawed in two. By faith, people endured suffering. And with all of those things that we read about in the last part of Hebrews I don't think those people that went through those circumstances were happy about their circumstances. But they had peace and joy in the midst of them because they knew that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And they had peace and joy knowing that something better was coming. If it wasn't coming in this life, it would come in the next. So as we think about God's will for our lives, primarily what we need to be thinking about, it's not about us, but it is for us, and God's will for us is to be made into conformity with Jesus, to be made just like him. And so with that understanding of God's will, we have to recognize that that may be hard, that God's will for our lives may be something that's really, really challenging, and so we've got to be ready to do hard things. Just look at the example of Jesus praying in the garden, ready to enter into the most difficult event in his entire life as he laid down his life for us, and he said, not my will, but yours be done. So that's a little bit scary to think about. I think it's, I mean, it's scary for me to think about, well, what does it mean for me to follow after God in everything that I do? What, like, what does that mean that's coming? Now, as I say that, I want to just give this word of caution as well, because it's really easy to begin when we recognize that following God's will for our lives may lead us into hard things. It's really easy to take a wrong posture 
towards people who are far from God. So that, because we recognize, you know, people will say things like this, like, it's hard to be a Christian today. I mean, the world is against us. People are looking to tear us down all the time. And when we begin thinking that way, it's easy to begin to kind of fall into the trap of our posture, our attitude toward people who are far from God is angry and bitter. But again, I want you to be careful with this. Now, is if we're doing what God wants us to do in everything, does that mean the world is against us? It does. Because that's what the Bible teaches, that the system of this world stands against God and the things of God. But yet at the same time, we read instructions about our posture toward people who are far from God. I have no idea why our fire system decides to um, test itself out. Always in this service. It's really weird how it happens. See, the Apostle Paul says this, Make the most of every opportunity that your conversations would be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to give an answer to everyone. The Bible says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as followers of Jesus, how we are to be known by people who are far from God is people of goodness and grace, not anger and bitterness. But that's God's will for us, that we come into conformity with Jesus, that we be made more like Jesus. Last thing I want to tell you about determining God's will for our lives. You will know God's will when you know his word. You will know God's will for your life when you know the word of God, not just snippets from the word of God, but when you truly know the word of God. Here's what I mean. When you know snippets of God's word, you know God has a plan for me, a plan to prosper me and not harm me, a plan to give me hope in the future. Jeremiah 29, 11. We've all got the needle points hanging up in our homes or like on the artwork or a bumper sticker on our car, right? Like we love that verse because it says good things are going to happen. That's God's plan for us. But when you know God's word, you know that that verse, that promise was given to the nation of Israel, not a person. It was given to the nation of Israel just after they had fallen to the Babylonians. And God said to the nation, hey, this is really bad what has just happened, but I've got a plan for you. But it is a plan that would only come to fruition hundreds of years later with the coming of Jesus. So when we know God's word, we know God's will. And so there in the garden, the content of Jesus' prayer, Lord, give me the strength to be obedient, to do your will. So when we find ourselves in a situation where we don't know how to handle what comes into our lives, the way that we do that is first determined to do God's will in everything. Second thing that Jesus exemplifies for us is the dedication that he had in prayer. I find in this passage uh, the, the stark contrast between Jesus and the disciples is just startling to me. In the very beginning of verse 39, it says that he made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. So this wasn't just a one-off thing. It wasn't he's cramming before a test, right? He, he, this is something that he did all the time. He spent time alone in prayer with the Father. And the, then Jesus instructs the disciples, hey, you stay here, you pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And then they don't do it. 
And what I find is, as I read this passage, if I'm really honest about it, I find myself being a whole lot more like the disciples than I do acting like Jesus. I don't know, if I were to guess, I would say 95%, maybe more, maybe it's 100% of us who are here today or who are watching online would say, we don't pray the way that we want to. Listen, I'm in that, whatever that percentage is. And so I I started to think about why. Why is it that I find myself acting a lot more like the disciples than I do like Jesus? I've come up with several different reasons. All of these reasons I have felt at different points in my own life. And so maybe you can relate with one of them. First reason that we may not pray the way that we want to is because we're not really sure that prayer works. If we're not really sure that prayer does anything, then why do it? It's an exercise in futility, and I'll just tell you, if it doesn't do anything, I've got a lot of things that I can do rather than waste my time on something that does nothing. Different reasons that we might come to that conclusion. We're not really sure that prayer works. It could be bad theology or bad belief. Like if we believe that God is so sovereign, so in control of everything, that everything in our lives is already planned out, and we're just kind of like puppets on a string, well then, listen, what's the point of prayer? I understand that. Now, I don't think that that's the way it is. I think there's a lot more to it than that. That would lead us, trying to answer that question would lead us into a rabbit trail that I just don't have time for this morning, but if you want to talk about it, I'd be glad to answer those questions. Another reason, skepticism. It could be you're just skeptical of things in the spiritual world, and so you're like, I don't really, this doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not really sure that it actually does anything. But, If I were to ask you, do you believe that prayer works, and you would honestly say, I'm not really sure that it does, and I were to ask you why, you might present one of those two answers. You might come up with something else. But my belief, though, is probably there's something a little bit more below the surface that has to do with disappointment with God. That there was a time in your life when you prayed and you prayed and you prayed thinking that God was going to do something for you, and he did not do what you wanted him to do or what you thought he should do, and you've come to the conclusion maybe it doesn't make a difference anyway. Sometimes we don't pray because we're not really sure that prayer works. Second reason that we might not pray the way that we want to is because we're afraid that it does work. And again, I, I, think, I think this way sometimes, different seasons in my life, I feel like if I pray regularly and consistently, there's a likelihood that God will ask me to do something or lead me to do something that I just don't want to do, that he's going to stretch me beyond where I want to go. And so rather than like sinfully saying no to that thing that God wants me to do, if I can just stay ignorant of that thing, like that sounds better to me. So I'm really afraid maybe that prayer does work. Sometimes we don't pray because we're not sure that it does work. Sometimes we are afraid that it will work. Sometimes we don't pray because we don't want to admit it. This is the sin of self-sufficiency. I talked about this earlier. If we believe that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, then we sinfully think, well, I can handle everything, so I don't need God's help in that, and we're not living in dependence on God the way that we were meant to. One other reason that I think we may not pray the way that we want to, it's because we're afraid that our simple faith formula, when tested, will fall apart. Here's what I mean by that. 
when it comes down to it, I think all of us would like to believe that the life of faith is a simple formula that says something like this. If I do this, then God will do that, and then my life will be easy. It's a whole lot easier for us to have like kind of this, what I would say is a surface level belief about faith. Like if I do this, then God does that, and then my life is going to look a certain way, which honestly for most of us is life is going to be easy, free from problems, etc. But yet at the same time, I think deep down inside, all of us believe that there has to be more to it than just that. And so rather than doing what according to our simple faith formula, is everything that we need to do so that God will do what he needs to do, which makes our life the way that we want it to be. We'll take the blame. So I'm not going to question God and his goodness, but the reason that my life is not the way that I want it to be, it's because of me. Because I'm not doing the things that I need to do. But the truth is, that's a misunderstanding of the life of faith. It is not a simple formula. Living by faith means seeking after God in the midst of the ups and downs of life, in the midst of doubts and fears and failures. We continue to pursue God because he's the one that has the answers, and we don't. And so it's Jesus that exemplifies this life of prayer for us. And so then the question is, well, why pray? In the midst of all these reasons that we can come up with why we don't pray, why should we pray? First, I'll tell you this, we pray to become more like Jesus. This is the mystical aspect of our faith. I can't explain it. I don't really understand how it works. But I know that as we spend time with God, primarily through prayer and scripture reading or study, as we spend time with God, the Spirit of God changes us and we become more like Jesus. I don't really know how it works, but I know it does. Jesus said it this way, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. If you abide in me, your life will be changed that you become more like me. Second reason that we should pray is because it does work, even if we don't see its effects. Again, I just go back to the life of Jesus. What I see Jesus doing throughout his life is teaching his followers to pray. Jesus living a prayerful life where he often went away, right? We read it here. As usual, he went away and spent time in prayer with the Father. He told a story about this widow, and he said, the point of this story is keep on praying and don't give up. And the only reason that I can come up with that Jesus did what he did in his life and said what he said in his life about prayer is because prayer does work, even if we don't see its effects. It's doing something even if we never see the results that we want or see any results at all. we got to continue to pray. Final reason that we pray is because we're not enough. I mean, that's just the reality of life. We often find ourselves faced with circumstances that are more than we can handle. And the only way that we are to make it through those situations is to go to the one who gives us the strength to continue on. Because we were never meant to handle all of this stuff alone. We're to live in dependence upon God who loves us, gives us grace, mercy, strength, wisdom to be able to handle things that are more than we can handle. So in the moments of what was getting ready to be the most difficult thing that Jesus ever faced, I think he gives us an example of how to handle more than we can handle, and he does two things. 
says, it's not about me, but your will. Determined to do God's will. And then he agonized in prayer, asking for strength to be able to do what God was leading him to do. How do we handle more than we can handle? Determined to do God's will and stay dedicated in prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, again, I just want to declare, even though so often, God, I will say I fall into the trap of thinking that I can handle on my own far more than I can handle. But I want to declare our dependence upon you. I mean, the truth is we can't navigate through the challenges that we go through in life apart from you. And you care about us. You care about what we're going through. You want to hear from us. Again, you've promised us to give us wisdom, to provide grace and mercy. You give us strength. And Father, I just pray that if there is a wrong belief that is keeping us from living in the way that you want us to, Father, reveal that to us, help us to confess that to you, to seek your forgiveness, and I pray that you would change our hearts. God, help us to believe in you and in your plan, in your will, that may call us to do hard things, but is the best thing that we could ever do because as we follow after you, you are going to make us more like Jesus. And so I pray that that would be carried out in us, that we would be brought into conformity with the one who gave himself for us. Father, continue to have your way in us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.